Turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Sunday morning, studying the book of Philippians together. And we conclude chapter 1. And as we're finding our way there, uh, just a reminder, on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, uh, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the Gospel according to John, and we'll be studying John chapter 11 tonight at 6 o'clock, one of the most famous miracles of Jesus, raising Lazarus from the dead and the lessons associated with it, and each of you are invited to come out. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning in this second service for the rain that you have blessed our state with and that so many of us have been praying for. We don't deserve a drop of it, but we're grateful for it, Lord, and for your grace and your goodness in supplying it to us. We thank you on this day, the first day of a new year. We leave one behind and we head out into a, a new year, 2023. And we thank you for your faithfulness to us in this last year, your goodness, your grace, your patience, your long-suffering, Lord. Thank you for all that you did and all that you were in our lives. And we thank you that what you've been, you'll always be. And who knows what is going to happen in human history in 2023 and what will be the characters, what will be the stories, what will be the wars, what will be the economies, what will be the persecutions, what, what, what. It's going to flash before our eyes if you should tarry. But we know you're greater than all of it. You've proven it year after year. And in faith, Lord, we look forward to what it is that you will do and you will be in each of our lives in this coming year. Thank you for your word that we have the privilege of being able to turn to. And we pray that you would take these truths today from this passage and you would give them a very specific application to our lives as needed. Would you give us a supernatural ability to hear your voice through your word this morning? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that a major theme of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, a church that he had been used by God to found and then to establish, is the theme of uh, joy. And some form of uh, the words joy or rejoice, a couple times it's uh, translated uh, glad in, these, uh, in this epistle. But uh, all the Greek word in whatever its form, it, it appears, this word joy in whatever form, some 16 times in the course of these four short chapters. And it is the potential loss of joy within this church at Philippi that the Apostle Paul loved so much uh, that had him very, very concerned for uh, uh, that loss. And that's a loss that's too significant for any church. And so he has now, at the end of verse 26, concluded what is the formal introduction of a letter in the uh, ancient world where he has identified himself as the writer, who he's writing to, he's done the greetings, he's offered thanksgiving, he's given them a uh, personal update upon his immediate circumstances. And now in verse 27, he heads in earnest into the body, uh, the meat and the main intent uh, of the letter. And so that's what we head in uh, to uh, today. And, uh, and here is Paul as he speaks on joy. And, and the fact that this letter has a theme of joy is all the more significant uh, given the fact that Paul finds himself in Roman custody, is in, in Roman uh, uh, incarceration. 
and uh, he is incarcerated, not because of any uh, wrongdoing on his part. They don't even have a charge to put against him. And yet in the unjustness and difficulty of the situation, he finds he has a capacity, an understanding of joy that allows him to speak of it, even in those circumstances. And if anybody's going to speak uh, about the subject of maintaining and joy in the midst of life's ups and downs, the Apostle Paul certainly had the credibility for doing that. Thus far, uh, as we have head through the, the, the book and we're looking at it expositionally, okay, what does this mean and what does this say, but also through the prism of the subject uh, of joy, thus far in this regard, we've noted that one key to joy is not spending all of our waking hours obsessed with thinking about people who have been or are presently a continual grief to us, but to stop and remember all of the people that are in our lives of whom we can uh, genuinely say, I thank my God upon every remembrance of them. And then second, as a key to joy, while in deep trial, to stop and to take my eyes off of the greatness of the trial and set my eyes upon uh, the significant uh, character that God is building in my life through the difficult uh, circumstances, how he's leaving his fingerprints upon the situation and developing uh, spiritual growth and godly character that wouldn't otherwise probably be produced any other way and to make that a cause for joy in the situation. And then third, that joy is found in and it's protected and not allowing the circumstances in life to bully us or to intimidate us and push us around, but to meet those circumstances with faith and to meet it with the Word of God as the Apostle Paul modeled for us uh, as he declared, as we saw last time, uh, concerning these circumstances, I know, uh, uh, speaking of God, earnest expectation, hope with all boldness, being confident of this. And this morning, Paul continues to enlarge on the theme of joy by first instructing us that joy is found in being an influence for unity in the body of Christ and in other relationships in our life as well. And then second, in reminding us that joy comes with having uh, biblical expectations concerning uh, the Christian life as Christians and then specifically uh, as it relates to persecution and suffering. And so first, joy is found in being an influence for unity and the body of Christ and in the other relationships in our life. Verse 27, he lays this out. Notice that Paul exhorts uh, them and he exhorts us, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word only, he just doesn't throw it in haphazardly. It's very, very instructive uh, to us, and it communicates that now having become Christians, uh, now the great focus of our life becomes, and the power of the Spirit, to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, to live a life that is consistent with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, consistent with that gospel, and to living that life is to be the highest priority of our lives as, as Christians. When he talks about our conduct here, he uses a Greek word, that's the original language of the New Testament, um, that is uh, a word that would have exploded the life for those that were living in Philippi, but require a little bit of explanation for us uh, this morning. Concerning the word conduct, uh, the, the word means in the original language, it means citizen. And uh, the city of Philippi uh, took great pride in the fact that they had been made a Roman colony of the Roman Empire by the emperor Caesar Augustus. And a Roman colony within the Roman Empire was considered to be an outpost of the city of Rome itself. It was a little piece of Roman culture, a little piece of Roman structure, uh, far away from Rome, somewhere else in the Roman Empire, and to be in one of these colonies uh, and a citizen, uh, to be in one of these colonies was also to enjoy uh, the immense privileges of being a, a citizen of the Roman Empire. 
And often these colonies, and it was certainly true of Philippi, they would be inhabited by a very large number of retired uh, soldiers, military men, uh, from the Roman legions. They would put in there 20 or 30 years or whatever it might be, be given an, an, a large sum of exit uh, pay, and then they would make their way to these colonies and they would establish residence there uh, with, their, uh, with their families. And so uh, to have a, uh, a, a cities that were dominated influence-wise by Retired soldiers of the Roman legions would have produced an a, uh, unshakable loyalty within these cities to Rome. I mean, they would have taken very seriously the responsibility of representing the city of Rome, the capital city of Rome, representing the Roman emperor in these foreign outposts, and they wouldn't have considered any sacrifice to do so. Uh, too great for them. And this was the secular context that the Christians in Philippi were living in the midst of. And Paul told them to transfer all of the pride, all of the loyalty, all of the uh, responsibility that was on full display around them, directed toward Rome every day in their lives, and then to apply it to their own citizenship in the kingdom of God. And just as every citizen or every nation has a responsibility uh, to live a life that maintains and advances the health of the nation they live in, so it is with Christians in the kingdom of God. There is that responsibility. After all, what would be the future of a nation whose citizens became purely individualistic or purely selfish? Uh, they conducted themselves without any thought for others or without any thought for the health uh, of the nation as a whole. Well, that nation wouldn't have much of a future uh, in front of it as we're witnessing these same trends in our own nation, people living more and more for themselves, every man, every woman uh, for themselves. But ultimately, what you do is you kill the goose that is laying uh, the golden eggs. And so within the body of Christ, it's true. Also, there is a tipping point within the kingdom of God and more locally within a local church where if the Christians become purely individualistic and, and it's all take and no give and no concern for the health of others, no concern for the health of the whole, there's not going to be much of a future for that, that church. And this attitude is, is so dominant within our culture we have to make sure that we, uh, it, it doesn't mark our lives and we then bring it into the kingdom of God. I'm not addressing a local problem here. It's one of the great things of going through the scriptures. As you hit them, you address them whether they're a current problem in the church or not. I don't recognize this as a, uh, any kind of a current selfish kind of thing that is going on to the detriment of the church, but it checks our hearts. Uh, individually. And after all, what is a church uh, except it is the uh, cumulative spirituality of the people that attend it? So it needs to be watched on a corporate level, but watched individually on that level within our own, uh, within our own hearts. He tells us that we're to conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the word worthy means uh, comparably, uh, suitably. The gospel consists of three great realities. It, it, it consists of the three greatest events in human history. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he declared that the gospel is the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, number one, was buried, number two, and on the third day rose again. Those are the three greatest events that have happened in human uh, history. And the gospel contains the single greatest other-centered act 
in human history the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And you just stop and you think about what sacrifice was required on Jesus' part to provide the world with a gospel. And the gospel means good news, to provide us with the good news of salvation that is found in Christ, to be able to declare within this world, to hear within this world, God's invitation to be saved and receive the forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, to be able to begin a personal relationship uh, with uh, God. And you think about that sacrifice, that means of salvation, given also to unite us as Christians into one body. You think about the multiple beatings that he took on the morning of his crucifixion, the trials that he endured, the blasphemies that were uh, 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 spewed against him, the false accusations that were made uh, concerning him, the crucifixion that uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews declares that he endured the cross. Yes, he endured it, but he despised the shame. And yet he bore that shame the shame of having his very creation, the world that he put into existence, every single human being created, owing our creation to our creator, to Jesus. And here he is being crucified by his creation and the shame of all of that. And Paul is laying out the idea of then, let us lay alongside all of that the virtually microscopic sacrifice that is required of each of us as Christians to resolve our individual conflicts with one another and to get along together. And here Paul tells us that we are to make the gospel and the price that Jesus paid for it our priority over everything else including any personality conflicts that we have with other, uh, other people, other Christians, even within the church that we attend, including any other issues or disagreements that we might have with one another. And the great tendency on the part of the church at Philippi, uh, and true of any church, is for me to take and to elevate whatever irritation, whatever uh, a sense of wrongdoing that I think related uh, to the situation and to elevate that and make that even more important, not only in my own life and in the life of the other person, but in the life of the church and in the world, more important than the gospel and more important than the church being known for that gospel, uh, not only within the church, but known for it in the community and known for it uh, around uh, the world. Nothing in the world is more important uh, than uh, the, the gospel of Christ. And, and so how can we give a greater importance to these kind of squabbles that occur in our lives? No Roman in a colony city would ever, ever uh, allow these kind of things to risk the health of uh, and the reputation of the Roman Empire. And I think that, Paul, there's really uh, some sanctified shaming going on here. And uh, shame is not a bad thing. We've paid a terrible price culturally for removing any semblance of shame related to even shameful acts uh, and behavior. And, uh, uh, but there is a, a sanctified shame going on here, not to the, to the church entirely, uh, but to some group, and we know two women in particular, we get to in a, in a chapter or two, but there's a little bit of sanctified shaming here to get them to take their conflict and bring some perspective uh, to it, lest the entire church be drawn into that conflict. Now, if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not, uh, Paul's exhortation to conduct ourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel, I, hear, I read him say that, I hear him say that, and, um, but it's tough for me to get my mind around it. Uh, what exactly is he saying by conducting ourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel? And so what does that look like? What does he mean? And he goes on to answer it in the passage, and he answers it 
uh, in this way, verse 27, by standing fast in one spirit. Verse 27, by with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in verses 28 and 30, by not being stumbled when we have to suffer for Christ's sake in our Christian walk. Now, when he talks about in verse 27, standing fast in one spirit, the Apostle Paul does what he does with uh, a great rapidity in, his, in his, uh, his writing. He moves from his previous analogy where he's talking about citizenship, and now he, begins, he moves it to the analogy uh, of an army. And he emphasizes the fact that an army can only stand fast in battle as they are one spirit, that is, as they are united. For any army to lose sight of the importance of unity within that that army in the face of battle, it will guarantee their defeat. It doesn't matter how well they are led. It doesn't matter how equipped they are. If there is not unity within the ranks of a physical army, they will lose always in battle. And the point wouldn't have been lost upon those who were living in that Roman colony, military colony like Philippi, filled with all of these retired military personnel and and their families. And so they were, and and we are, as as Paul writes to us here, to possess this unshakable unity in the midst of uh, the spiritual warfare that we uniquely face in this world, the battles that we uniquely face as Christians in the world and involved in the advancement of the gospel uh, into the world through the gospel. Now, it is important to notice that Paul is not calling on Christians to unite around just anything. He calls upon us to unite around the gospel. He does not call on Christians to unite around false doctrine. He does not call upon Christians to unite around goofy kind of practices that are oftentimes advanced within professing uh, Christianity uh, historically, but around the gospel of Christ. And so we have to resist uh, we have to engage false doctrine and, and these kind of practices. Jude told us that we're to contend earnestly for the faith. That's not what he's talking about here. Paul is referring to Christians giving greater preeminence to their personal disagreements and contentions in a local church than to the gospel and its advancement. And here you have the recognition of the corporate aspect of uh, Christianity. We are to have a concern for our own individual, personal Christian life. But it doesn't just end there. As Christians, we're to have a corporate concern, the same concern for the health uh, of the local church that that we uh, 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 attend. A local church is not a bless me club where I choose a church the way that we choose everything else in life. How can I get the most by paying the least? Uh, how can I get the most by giving the least and, and, and then bringing that kind of uh, consumeristic attitude within the, within the church and, and uh, deciding in that way? But to ask God... And, and come to that place where you say, a person says, uh, Lord, is this the church that you would have me to attend uh, presently? And if he says yes, then to commit wholeheartedly to its health. Again, I'm not dealing with a local issue here at all, but this is what he's saying. And committing wholeheartedly to the health of, of this corporate aspect of Christianity includes standing fast in one spirit for the gospel of Christ and then making all of the things that on a carnal level can divide us from one another massively sub- subservient to uh, that. And so like a soldier, we are to view our survival, <clears throat> excuse me, as absolutely tied to the health and the well-being of those who are on our left, 
those who are, who are on our right in this battle, and we're doomed if we choose to fight over, uh, with one another over these comparatively minor issues. And uh, admittedly, that can uh, take some spiritual maturity to, and some conf- conscious effort to think in that way, uh, but the Holy Spirit gives us the, the, the capacity for it. He says that we're to, with one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel. And so here, Paul moves from citizenship as, a, as a, a, an analogy. He moves then from a military analogy, and now he shifts to uh, an athletic contest. And what is true of an army in battle is also true of a sports team in competition. So maybe you've never been in the military, uh, but you've been on a sports team. And so Paul, he's going he's to pull all of us in by the net somewhere before he gets uh, done here. Imagine any football team or basketball team trying to win a game when all of the players are doing precisely what they want to do without any regard for the whole, the health of the whole, uh, without any uniting goal. Uh, related to the whole. And of course, this is bowl season for college football. I don't know how interesting that is to, to other people, but I, I think it's fabulous. And, uh, and, and so uh, you have these receivers. What would it be like? Who could even uh, hope to be rated and ranked as a foot, college football team if the receivers came to the line and ran any kind of route that they wanted to, independent of the quarterback. Well, they'd get slaughtered. Every single game, uh, they would uh, get slaughtered. And, uh, and so you see these games, and uh, we're treated to a couple of great games yesterday, and you see all of these players that are on the field, say, on the offense, and you see all of the work that goes into. I, I would contend... There's as much choreography involved in a football play as you'll ever find in a ballet. You have all of these, uh, it's a bad picture in your mind to see them, and, but you have these massive human beings and they, they, are, they want to run this play because they need to gain three yards for a first down. They know what the play is. They're on the same page. They give their everything to their part in that play to gain those three yards. And you watch them do it play after play after play, submitting their own differences that might be in the locker room or whatever differences may be in just in terms of personality. They put all of that behind to gain three yards on a football field to entertain fans in the United States of America just to keep us entertained for three hours. And they're willing to do that in order for that to uh, happen. And for us as Christians, what unites us as all of the players elevate the greater goal of winning over their own selfishness, what unites us is to properly represent and, and advance the faith of the gospel in the world over all of our carnality and all of our uh, selfishness. Now, the application of this to joy is an important one. And the joy that we will experience in life will be directly proportional to the unity that we have in relationship with others, uh, including in the body of Christ. And it will require... Uh, uh, me playing my part in maintaining that unity. And maintaining that unity is no awful uh, thing because one of the great joys in life is being an influence for unity anywhere, but for being an influence for unity in the body of Christ, to be an instrument that God uses for unity in a local church. There is never, when a person looks and says at at a particular relationship where there is a conflict in their own life with another person or they're aware of another conflict and they 
uh, uh, and make themselves available to be helpful in solving that particular uh, conflict. There is never any uh, guilt, never any regret, never any second guessing in an attempt to bring unity uh, to people that are uh, estranged in, it, relationally in some way and uh, even when we are uh, unsuccessful. We can live with it, even if we were unsuccessful. But there's plenty of guilt and plenty of regret and a complete absence of joy in the life of one who is a bomb thrower in those situations or a bomb thrower in a local church, or they're always stirring the pot. They're always uh, passing on the divisive gossip. They just love to fight. And there's never any peace in that. And that kind of person becomes a threat to the peace then, or uh, no joy in it. They become a threat to the joy uh, of that local church. Jesus spoke definitively to this in his Sermon on the Mount when he was giving his Beatitudes, the recipe for a blessed life, a a happy life, a joy-filled life. And he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In other words, blessed is the person who doesn't take unnecessarily a side in a conflict like uh, that, or to inflame it in any way, or make things worse, but who actively works for a godly, peaceful resolution to the conflict. And why is there joy found in that place? Why is there joy in living that as a lifestyle? Why does it feel just feel right when we do it? It is because it is to be like God. As Jesus said, for they shall be called the sons of God. It reveals us to be the sons of God. It reveals us to be, to be endeavoring to do in that situation what God is also endeavoring to do uh, in that situation. And so this morning we sit in the privacy of our own hearts and we allow it to search us and to just ask myself, am I on the right side or the wrong side of this cause for joy in the Christian life? Am I involved in a conflict, involved in a situation where I'm a bomb thrower, I've unnecessarily taken sides, I'm talking uh, about the situation, inflaming it, and all kinds of different ways that we can inflame it, or uh, can I look at it and say, I look at that, I have been, I am willing to be an instrument of God to bring a peaceful resolution and unity uh, to that relationship. And if we find ourselves on the wrong side of that, there's nothing wrong with stopping on a dime, and like right now, stopping on a dime and saying, I see that I am not being helpful here in this. And it's cost me my joy. And it's costing other people their joy. I'm going to turn on that dime and I am going to determine Uh, in and of myself by the power of the Holy Spirit to only be an influence for unity and for a peaceful outcome uh, here. And then our joy will return. Second joy in verses 28 through 30, it comes with having biblical expectations of the Christian life. Paul tells us plainly that as Christians, we are going to have adversaries in life. We're going to have people who oppose us and those who will be against us simply because we are Christians and simply because we identify ourselves with the God of the Bible and with the Bible uh, itself, that we believe in the truth of the Bible, we believe in all of those pesky thou shalt nots and those thou shalts. And, uh, and Jesus himself was very, very upfront about the fact that as we live that kind of life and as we identify ourselves with him in this world, it is going to mean persecution, it is going to mean suffering, and it will mean we will have adversaries uh, in, in our, our lives. He uses the word adversary, it's interesting here, because and I think one of the reasons he does is it's a reminder that we're in a spiritual warfare. It is that reminder 
that the uh, that we uh, there is a kingdom of God and there are the kingdoms of this world, and there will never be compromise between the two. There can there cannot be. The devil can compromise, but he never will. Uh, not in any ultimate way. Uh, he'll compromise on a, on a short, small thing in order to gain a greater, a greater thing. And the kingdom of God is never to compromise at all. So it reminds us to become a Christian is to become a part of a battle. It is to become a part of a very real spiritual warfare. And, and so uh, it, it is that we experience it. And Jesus said, Concerning this, we could spend the morning reading verses in this regard. I'll limit myself to one. In John chapter 15, he said to us, to you personally, to me personally, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were, not a, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all things they will do to you for my name's sake, because you identify with me, uh, because they do not know him that is the Father who sent me. And so this is persecution that comes, Jesus spoke about, for my name's sake, because of our identifying with him as a Christian. Likewise, in verse 29, uh, the persecution Paul is addressing here, uh, that, that uh, we, the, the suffering is for his sake, for Jesus' sake. And so this uh, applies to the opposition and the suffering that we will occur, uh, incur as Christians, not because we're being arrogant, or not because we're being weird to try and prove that we're a peculiar people in this world. But here is a persecution and an opposition that comes for just simply putting our faith in Christ for salvation, for identifying with him, and then being obedient to the life that he has called us uh, to. And yet the funny thing is, and I find it true in my own life, and, and maybe you do as well. No matter how many times God forewarns me that I must expect this to be a reaction from the world uh, by some part of it, at the very least, that when it does occur, it can surprise us. And, and when we're shunned or rejected for simply being a Christian or were whispered after, or, or slandered, or were seen as an enemy, or even, as is increasingly occurring within the culture, to be hated for simply being Christians and identifying with Christ. And so Paul tells us how we are to view this, uh, this opposition uh, when it occurs, not if it occurs, but when it occurs. And he tells us how we're to view it by telling us, number one, we're not to be terrified by our adversaries. And why would he tell us not to be terrified by our adversaries, except we have a tendency to be terrified by our adversaries? Especially when they're powerful, and especially when they're big, like the Roman Empire and Caesar Nero, with the Apostle Paul in his immediate uh, situation. And why would he tell us not to be terrified by our adversaries except that they endeavor to terrify us, they endeavor to intimidate us, to put us on our back feet in the culture that God has called us to reach with this gospel and to take that gospel and then to hide it, to cease it being salt and light through my life within my family, within my neighborhood, within my school, within uh, my sphere of influence or uh, wherever that might be. And there is that constant uh, uh, adversarial uh, attack upon that and in order to uh, silence the gospel, God's offer of salvation uh, to the world. 
And so we're not to be terrified by them, no matter how powerful they might be, and we're not to cave to their demands. All of the opposers of God and His people throughout all of history, they all end up on the ash heap of human history. It always happens. And the same thing will be true of every enemy of God and every enemy of His people that exist in this part of human history and the world in which we live. And so the importance of standing and having that recognition and not being terrified uh, uh, by them, however much they might huff and puff and try to blow our house down. He says, second, that we're to remember what all of this really communicates. And, and that is that the persecution of Christians by these adversaries, it is proof of their perdition. That is their impending judgment by God. And then for the Christian who remains faithful to God in the face of this uh, uh, persecution, it is further proof of our salvation, the salvation that God has brought into our lives. And then he tells us in verse 29 that we are to view all such rejection and opposition by these adversaries, all the suffering it produces as a granted, as a gift, as a privilege in our lives as Christians. You say, as a privilege, how so? Well, what would be the alternative to believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, having our eternity secured, having the forgiveness of sin in our past taken care of, and, and then uh, the, the blessing uh, of being able to live the life that we live now, to live it in the truth, to live it for the truth? What would be, what would be the only alternative to the Christian life for all of its suffering? And for all of the persecution, for all of the adversaries, and, and, uh, and the rejection and, and so forth, well, it would be not to know him. It would be not to be a Christian and to live under the same lies and the same insanity and addictions everyone else does in the world, to live under the same hopelessness. That hopelessness that we lived in at one time to live with the same purposelessness of, of life that we once lived in and, and the, the despair of, of all of that. Now, the Apostle Peter, he saw it all very, very clearly when in John chapter 6, as Jesus is viewed by many people who were following at that, him at that point in his ministry as a uh, a vending machine, a food machine, and uh, as a place to go and he feeds the 5,000. You just got to hang around with them. And the crowd that had been fed the previous day, the 5,000 men plus the women and children, they follow him the next day. They find him not because they want his truth, but because they want another meal. And Jesus then separates uh, that group by declaring to these uh, outwardly appearing to be disciples, and he says, you're just coming to me for a meal. You want to be my disciple? I'll tell you what's involved. You must eat my body and you must drink my blood. In other words, you must internalize my life into your life. I need to come inside your life to be born again and your life be characterized by me. And the people that were listening to Jesus speak these things, they said, these things that he is saying here are hard to hear. And this great multitude began to melt away. And evidently the whole crowd did. Because Jesus is left standing now with the 12 apostles. And he says to them, will you depart also? And it's one of the most vulnerable portraits of Christ in all of the scriptures. And he's communicating to the disciples that this is what it means to be a Christian. 
And it's not just when I'm speaking to the crowd, and it's not, this is what is required. I'm not, it's never going to change. These are the demands of discipleship. Do you want in or do you not want in? But this is what I'm about, and this is what I do. And Peter spoke up for all of them, and Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? And don't you feel those words? Sometimes you get Christianity and the, and the trials and the difficulty and the spiritual warfare and can get you to think about going back and you, and you go, I can't go back to that. We, every one of us has become a Christian. We've been permanently spoiled for ever going back, even to the sins that we once loved and ever enjoy them in the way that we once did. And it's a wonderful spoiling that occurs within our lives. And it tells me that as Peter is listening to the demands of Christ in terms of a Christian, that he thought about it. And he answers and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of everlasting life. And also we've come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We sing a chorus in, uh, that's entitled, I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. And there's a line in there that says, I am happy to be in the truth. And my heart explodes every time I sing it and every time I think about it. Having lived under the lies of the world and the indoctrination of the world for so many years in my life, under my own lies that I, that I told myself, and then to become a Christian and to be able to live my life underneath the weight and the beauty and the forming of the truth of God's Word and see the quality of life that is produced that makes us sing, I am happy to be in the truth. And in verse 30, Paul lets the church at Philippi know that uh, he was not exempt from this, and they knew that. Remember when the church was established in Philippi, Paul ended up in a, in, in a prison in Philippi and, and suffering great persecution. They knew him to be imprisoned presently uh, in, in Rome. And so they, his own life spoke of the fact that there's going to be suffering and persecution and anta antagonists in, in the Christian uh, life and not only uh, concerning apostles, but also concerning every single Christian, both now, uh, then, and now. And one of the reasons this is important to understand is that Satan loves to make us feel as if somehow we are uh, unique or alone in the persecution that we face. And Paul lets them know, he lets us know that that isn't true. And the fact that other Christians are facing the same persecutions that we are and greater all around the world and doing so victoriously is a great encouragement to us. And Paul says uh, to them and to us, nope, it's normal and you're normal. Now, let me close by making the application to joy here in this regard. One of the most important protections to joy in our Christian life is to make sure that our expectations concerning persecution and suffering for our faith, that those expectations are biblical. In other words, we live a Christian life in which we expect this to happen in our lives. And we're not stumbled by it when it does, and, and uh, we're, we're not uh, in, in any way uh, surprised uh, by it. And then further that we can process it as Paul instructs us here in a way of saying to myself, all right, I'm not surprised by this, but how do I handle it? By not being terrified by my adversaries, to recognize it's a proof of their perdition, to recognize that it's further proof of my own salvation, to realize that it's an honor in this world to suffer for Christ's sake, and to realize that no Christian escapes this in the world. And if I bring an expectation that because I am now a Christian 
And because Christ has made me a better and a nicer person than I have ever been in my life, that somehow everyone is going to like me and respect me for that as a result. And then when many of them don't, it can become a great cause for bitterness in our life. It can be a great cause for being stumbled in our faith. People can get angry. They can get angry at God. They can get angry at the persecutors, angry at the same world that we're called to reach uh, with the gospel. And all of these responses that are so dangerous to how God wants to use us. And this will occur if we're stumbled and surprised by persecution and rejection and so forth. This will occur supremely, not because of our persecutors, but because we have brought a wrong understanding of Christianity into our Christian life and a unbiblical understanding of Christianity. We must not bring into our Christian life any expectation that the world will treat Jesus in us any differently than it treated Jesus in his incarnation 2,000 uh, years ago. Well, we ought to give Jesus the final uh, word on, on this as we should. Again, from among his Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, there's the word. And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And when it happens, Jesus is saying, it's actually a cause for joy, because people are now identifying our lives with Christ and identifying our lives with his kingdom. And that's the blessing of the persecution and the source of joy. And so Paul reminds us here that joy comes with being an influence for unity in the body of Christ and in any other relationships within our life and then with having biblical expectations concerning persecution and suffering for Jesus' sake. It's so practical and it's so helpful to me, and I hope it is uh, to you as well. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we see that the church at Philippi is not unlike us at all. It appears that they are prone to all of the weaknesses and all of the deceptions and all of the loss of perspective that every single one of us is prone to. And so this morning we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's timeless. Thank you that I will outlive the heavens and the earth and certainly outlive any circumstance within our lives. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this instruction in its own right, but then in a way that causes us to keep this great priceless fruit of your Holy Spirit called joy a constant in our lives in the same way that it was in your life, Jesus. And we pray that you would now as we leave this place, in whatever degree, to whatever way we need to sift these things through and work them out with you, that that would occur. And we pray for this continued work of your Spirit through your Word. In Jesus' name, amen.